Hi, everybody, and welcome to a special edition of The Yard Sign. Your host, as always, Johnny Torres. Thank you so much for watching. I'm excited uh, because of the guests that I have with me today. Uh, but certainly, we are going to be discussing a very serious topic as it continues to develop uh, halfway around the world. Uh, but again, this is the opportunity where you want to hear from people who've had experience in those parts of the world um, and those who have... Uh, been there and given that uh, firsthand experience and uh, you know been on the ground in those situations uh, and have a, a much different perspective maybe than you and I would have uh, in regards to what's happening in Afghanistan. So that is going to be today's topic uh, for this special edition of the Yard Sign. Uh, let's go ahead over to the big table and uh, welcome today's guests. We've got uh, a familiar face on the far end, uh, my buddy Joe Wicker. Uh, who's uh, a veteran? Which camera am I looking at? Uh, that that uh, one here over here on the far left. There we go. Got it. Um, uh, and uh, you know, I mean, you've mentioned on the show before, but you you are an army veteran. Uh, and and uh, do you want to kind of mention some of the engagements you were involved in? Well, just, I think for the purposes of of this show, um, I was an I uh, uh, an assistant team chief on an advisory team that worked with the um, Iraqi security forces in Baghdad during the surge. So the, the mission there was to advise and train them to take over the security of their own country. Okay. Well, and again, you know, uh, obviously. So that, that, that was the mission that we did. That's also the mission that we've been doing in Afghanistan for basically Right, years exactly. Too, and that was what I was going to say. Which unfortunately so, hasn't unfolded well. Yeah. Relative, to, relative to the conversation that we're going right, to be having right. today. Uh, and new to the show, but uh, not new to me, uh, you know, a good friend of mine from uh, when uh, I was at Senator Rubio's office, uh, a, a former state representative, former county commissioner in Citrus County, uh, Jimmy T. Smith. How are you, sir? I'm doing good. Thanks so much for being here. This is awesome. I'm so excited to have you. Well, I, look, I, I've enjoyed watching the show, and I look forward to the conversation. Yeah, well, and again, uh, you've taken on a new role now, and uh, uh, again, where you're, you've kind of continue to serve the community in so many different ways, uh, both in Tallahassee, in the county commission in Citrus County, and now you've taken on a role with Concerned Veterans of America. Tell us a little bit about that. So I'm the Florida Coalition's Director for the Concerned Veterans for America. We're a nonpartisan, not-for-profit organization that works on policy. So we're known as the voice for veterans for freedom and prosperity. So being the voice of veterans for freedom and prosperity means that we're not a VSO. We don't take on veterans' uh, cases like right. the VFW and stuff like that. We actually work on policy that we bring to state and, and federal leaders that benefit the nation as a whole. So if it benefits veterans in this way, potentially it benefits the entirety nation. Yeah. Uh, so, again, this may be the biggest issue affecting uh, our veterans, maybe since you know, a lot of the issues that we've had with the VA in recent years. Um, and we may touch on some of that, but that's not really the point of today's conversation. Um, what I think most Americans are certainly concerned with, and we've seen it all across social media, uh, has been the concern over veterans' mental health in regards to what has just transpired. So let's talk a little bit about that before we kind of get into some of the political stuff um, and, and military kind of nuances about what's happening. Um, what are you hearing so far in regards to the reaction from veterans uh, who both served in Afghanistan and maybe those who 
or, or have been affected by it regardless? So uh, obviously, yes, I've communicated with a lot of veterans, people that uh, I know personally that I'm injured before they went into the military, uh, people that I know who are currently serving that are still in the military. So I've got a pretty broad brush of uh, individuals to communicate with. And what I'm hearing as far as the mental health and the stress is that they're, they're really challenged by feeling that some of their service over there was for naught. And the first and foremost, we've uniformly, people are saying, listen, no matter what the um, people in suits do, we love the people in boots. Yeah. And we know that you served your country with pride. Think about that. The men and women went over there and were told to go into battle and to do X and Y. And they right. did. And they did it with courage. And even though they lost brothers and sisters over there in battle, at no point should any veteran feel anything less than pride for standing up as a brave member of the United States military doing the duty that they were tasked to do. And that's the conversations that we're currently having. But they feel that um, maybe we shouldn't have been there in the first place. Mm -hmm. Then there's the feeling on the far side that says, well, maybe we should have never left and maybe had more troops there. Um, neither one of them is the right answer. Neither one is. Basically, the reality is, the right answer is, we went over there for the right reason. Al-Qaeda, Osama bin Laden. And then the other side is, it was the time to leave. 20 years or more enough. When you are sending the children of the first warfighters into the same war, it's more than time to leave. Yeah, well, and, and we're going to get into uh, some of the timing, and then, of course, the execution of our departure you know, from from Afghanistan, but, uh, you know, as a good podcast host, we had a little conversation before the show um, where we discussed how right off the bat uh, people were making comparisons to Vietnam, and, and we discussed that a little bit in the sense that there was a very vocal anti-war movement uh, in the 70s um, that not only rejected the war for being what it is, but also lumped in a lot of the soldiers that were involved in that war and held them responsible for the things that happened in that, in that war. Um, so nowadays, while I would say maybe the majority of the country would certainly could be maybe consider themselves anti-war, um, as you said, you know, they are very supportive of our troops. Um, and then there's some conflict as to how and what we should have done in Afghanistan. Um, for those veterans who did serve in Vietnam, uh, if you've had the chance to talk to some of them, I mean, how are they feeling about this? Is this, uh, is this deja vu for them? Uh, or, or do they understand you know, the, some of the nuances and the differences between where we were culturally um, in the 70s versus now? Well, and I think, um, and it really was exampled by the picture of the helicopter on the embassy. Mm -hmm. uh, that's when it really kind of triggered some of my friends who are Vietnam veterans who are saying, well, look, it is Vietnam all over again. But they also understand um, that they learned in Vietnam it was eventually time to leave, that it was a war that was unwinnable. And so they understand that. And so both entities, the current Afghan veterans, as well as the Vietnam veterans, you know, uniformly believe that the service was the right service and, and honorable. Mm -hmm. But it, it is to where everybody's looking to D.C. and to the generals and suggesting, okay, 
you guys put us in this situation. This is all laid on the feet of politicians and generals, especially now they're Monday morning quarterbacking about how to do everything, that none of them won the war. There's nobody in all of D.C. and all of the Pentagon that can raise their hand and say, I won the war. Right. And Vietnam veterans get that because in Vietnam, they won the battles, but not one general or one politician coming out of Vietnam was able to say, I won the war. So uh, are, are they also, you know, seeing some emotional effects from this? Uh, I mean, because again, you know, uh, certainly generationally, um, they had to suppress a lot of those feelings, a lot of, uh, a lot of that maybe remorse, regret, um, rejection that they felt when they came back home. Um, emotionally, where do you see some of those Vietnam vets when they look at what just happened in Afghanistan? Absolutely in the same position. Absolutely in the same position. I, I talked to certain Vietnam veterans who are very vocal in the same way that some of the Afghan vets are about was the service of our men and women fighting over there worth it. So the ones who did serve are saying was our service. And the ones who are Vietnam veterans are saying was their service. But other than that, that, you know, that specific aspect, it is correlating with each other. They're very much aligned. So um, for an organization like yourself, mm-hmm. uh, like CVA, sorry, so Concerned Veterans of America, um, what's, what's really been, you know, right out of the gate, what, what has your message been first to veterans? Well, first to veterans, obviously, is, is the message of no matter what happens, Okay, we can do an after actions after all of this and blame whomever. Mm-hmm. Right now, your service mattered. If you need help, there's the VA hotline and other hotlines within your community. Call them. So that's our first message to yeah. individuals. The second thing is, no matter what is happening in Afghanistan right now, the withdrawal out of Afghanistan was needed. Mm-hmm. There was absolutely no benefit to staying in Afghan long-term. And then there's lots of talking heads that will suggest that there was. Sure. But then you have the, the State Department's very own report from 2019. They've yet to come out with 2020. But their own reports demonstrate that terrorism was growing on the continent of Africa. So if it's growing on the continent of Africa, having billions of dollars every year spent in a country that is basically, you know, controlled by the Taliban and was growing and controlled by the Taliban was not a benefit to us. Because the Taliban, even though they supported Al-Qaeda, they never attacked us. Right. We went in there and said, well, you give us Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden or else. They said, well, we'll take or else. And subsequently we went in. Hi, everybody. Again, welcome to The Yard Sign, this special edition where we're discussing uh, developments in Afghanistan. And I brought in uh, two friends of mine who, uh, again, have varying uh, expertise, experience, uh, not only in that part of the world, but certainly with dealing with uh, a a lot of the different elements um, that uh, not only led to what's currently happening in Afghanistan, but uh, are now certainly being affected by the fallout of uh, Afghanistan um, or our departure from there. Uh, so again, uh, joining me in today's conversation, uh, Joe Wicker and uh, Jimmy T. Smith, uh, former state representative, former county commissioner in Citrus County, and uh, currently the coalition's director for Concerned Veterans of America. Um, I, I now kind of want to shift uh, the conversation 
to, let's say, the, not so much the political, right? Um, because, of course, we, we, were, we briefly touched on the generals and, 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 you know, the intelligence agencies and all these who, who really have been responsible for what's been going on there the past 20 years. Um, let's get into that. What, first of all, from a military perspective, um, for whether you're serving or you have served, um, how does what how does that dynamic change, or what effect does this have uh, for again not only those serving but those who are veterans in regards to that relationship between those higher ups, you know, within the military ranks, and then of course the collaboration with the intelligence agencies when you see a failure like we are witnessing in Afghanistan? Well, and, and I think it can actually be demonstrated by the uh, Panama Papers, or not Panama, the Afghan Papers that came out in, um, in 2010, 2011. And matter of fact, the, there's a book on it that's recently um, been concluded and will be coming out shortly as well. And fundamentally, and this was the troops on the ground, uh, people I know have told me, they knew things were not working out. I mean, there was Operation Anaconda, which was an effective operation, and some other things. But overall, the, um, the Afghan papers had emails from generals and others and diplomats that basically said, we don't know what to do. We don't understand the Afghanis, and we really don't understand what to do. And there was hundreds of suggestions that came out of that. Mm -hmm. But yet still, uh, I think we can see by today's... Um, current situation, nobody really understood how to handle Afghanistan. And I, I think the reality is Alexander the Great didn't understand how to operate it with them. Wow, yeah. Genghis Khan, Kublai Khan, the British Empire, the Russians, and us. Nobody understands. Well, I'm not how suggesting to that, that, I, <laughs> that I have an answer for that, but I do think that there is, um, there is a, a, a a problem that's derived from our culture that causes us to uh, not take certain actions in the Middle East. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, in American culture is turn the other cheek, right? Their culture is eye for an eye. Yes. Okay? Um, r religiously speaking, they're kind of, they're Old Testament, we're kind of New Testament, right? Um, our belief system is that in our culture, if you... Um, if you screw up and you acknowledge that you made a mistake, that actually builds trust. And we think, gosh, you know, this guy understands his, you know, where he failed. This will make him better moving forward. You actually build trust working with people like that. In the Middle East, they, they will not bring themselves to acknowledge that they've personally made an error because then this is somehow dishonorable, and so it's an honor issue, right? So they will lie and cover up things when that doesn't help. Much like the Asian culture. Yes, it's an honor thing, and so you have a problem moving forward and getting better when you can't do that, when you can't make that self-assessment. But like you're demonstrating, people on the ground understood that. People on the ground who were actually interacting. Yeah, you learn it. Oh, you learn. Right. <laughs> you learn because you're dealing with but them if, on if a you, daily basis. If you yeah. follow what was put out in the Afghan papers, the generals weren't learning that. So there, like, back to his question, there was, I believe, 
has demonstrated a huge disconnect of what was smart and knowledgeable and capable on the ground well, compared to the plannings and the strategies and, and things. So tactics and techniques is different yeah. than strategies. Yeah, yes. And fundamentally, the two could not connect. And the, the, that, I think, was something that when I talk to Afghan veterans, they will tell you they knew how to fight the enemy. They knew how to of deal course, with the of enemy. Of course. Okay. But then you have the demonstrations of the Afghan papers that says the generals had no clue. And this is their words. This is literally their words back to D.C. and back to the Pentagon to where they demonstrated they had no clue. And, and people then wonder subsequently why in a 20-year period we continued never to really gain what we thought was going to be a future nation of well, Afghanistan. Well, there's, there's another issue that there's – there's a couple of issues here too – in regards to generals not knowing or whatever, and look, you know, I, I, highest rank I achieved was captain. I mean, I, I I wasn't staying in. I knew I was getting out the day I went in, and so I don't I don't want to claim to understand their their view. Um, I do understand their desire to have metrics and measure things um, because you are managing a very very large organization and you're managing a large operation. So I get that. And yes, there's going to be a disconnect between the guy on the ground. But that information's got to filter up, but. Here's the thing, though. Um, the um, the when you go back and look at World War II, okay, and how we kind of dealt with a conquered enemy. First of all, our standard to stop the bombing, okay, we we literally were willing to bomb every single city until it didn't exist anymore in Germany and Japan. We were willing to destroy the entire country, which actually in, entails killing every man, woman, and child if necessary, until we achieved an unconditional surrender. So number one, we were willing to do what it took until the enemy said, cried uncle, yeah. okay? And, and then after that, after achieving that, we didn't then ask them and get all excited about elections and democracy and all that, you know, as if this was a sign of, of our success. We said no. You have no government right now. We will tell you what your government is. Um, we're going to write your documents. Um, you're going to model it after these things. Of course, we brought in institutions that they understood and, and had historical uh, uh, importance to them, um, like we allowed the Japanese to keep an emperor. The Germans already had a representative government. I mean, Hitler was only there eight years. I mean, it really wasn't. Right. So they were able to kind of go back to the old system. but. But the point is, is that we didn't try to necessarily win hearts and minds, which is something that you heard a lot in the war on terror. We told the, the Nazis, you, no, Nazism is outlawed. None of you are going to be in charge. You're, we're, we're trying people. We're convicting people. And the low-level people, if you don't want the same to happen to you, you're going to get in line. To the Japanese, we said, you can keep your emperor, but this military... Uh, basically military conquest culture of, of the military controlling the, the country and the politics, that's not going to be the case anymore. We're going to demilitarize you. You're going to have a defensive force only. And we really took a heavy hand at how they were going to redevelop their country. And then we poured in tons of money, tons of support, but there was no option as to whether or not you were going to do it our way. Conversely, we go to Iraq and Afghanistan, and I felt this in Iraq you know, very early on. We were constantly looking for these signs that 
uh, they wanted us there and that we were saviors. And, oh, see, look, these people want democracy. Well, well now, human beings want to be free. And absolutely, many, many Iraqis absolutely appreciated that we were there. I know in Iraq, there's not anybody in Iraq that wasn't somehow negatively impacted by Saddam, which is why they gave him up so quick. Okay, So they, there was an appreciation of what we could accomplish. But what we did was we actually pulled back the reins too quickly. As soon as they could have elections, we wanted to have an election. And then we're like, hey, this is their government. You guys are in charge now. Well, time out. The people that just got elected have never run a government at, at a minimum in 35 years since Saddam's been there. They don't know what they're doing. The, uh, they've got people that, have, that now have power but have never been in power. So they're going to just use it as an opportunity to enrich themselves. And I believe that I'm right in saying that it almost became policy to turn the other way and not pay attention to the corruption that occurred in both the Afghan and the Iraqi government. Absolutely. And by us allowing that to happen, because we thought that, well, that's their culture, it's just the way it is, we can't force our beliefs on them. Well, then what are you there for? Right. I mean, you conquered them, so if you're not willing to follow through, and let me, let me say this yeah. one last thing. So, so then by us doing that, by us allowing their government and their military and civilian leadership to, to be corrupted by money and self-serving in the way that they did things, you did not gain the confidence of the soldiers willing to fight and of the people. Yeah. And so while I know the Iraqis, they, they trusted Americans because they knew that we didn't care about Sunni Shia. Or they knew that we weren't there religiously. We weren't, we weren't, this wasn't a crusade. Like they understood right. that we weren't trying to turn them into something that they're not. But they couldn't trust the government that we were leaving them with. Yeah. And, and therein lies the whole problem. And it was, I guess, even worse in Afghanistan. So, but uh, I'm going to tell you, there's a, a, something that you're kind of hovering around. And one of the reasons that that was allowed to happen, okay, was we have the authorization for use of military force. These blanket documents that are coming out. So Congress has, the, the executive, the president, has the official constitutional right. You mean instead of declaring war is what you're saying? To, to go to war right. and to do military actions, okay? Without declaring war. Without declaring war. Now, mm -hmm. at a certain point, because of Korea and other actions, Congress has said, okay, but you need to come back to us and get the authorization for use of military force. So that subsequently has led us into different operations around the world. Come up to modern days, okay, and these authorization for use of military forces is open-ended. So right. one, of the, one of CVA's priorities is actually to Eliminate that. Eliminate the current authorization for use of military force uh -huh. and have it restructured uh -huh. because we're not against the use of military force. Have it restructured to where all AUMFs must have a time limit because the other side of that is the Congress under the Constitution is supposed to declare war. Right, right. But no matter what, they are the representatives right. of the people in a representative government and are supposed to be part of holding the executive accountable for that. And imagine if any of those AUMFs were only two years long, or maybe three, and that in that two-year period, the president and the generals had to come back 
and talk about strategies and plans, corruptions, and the next step forward. Yeah. And you had a representative body to tell them this is unacceptable. Right. Do you think? Do you think having been an elected official yourself? Is the use of military force a way for politicians to avoid the um, the the actual vote of, of of a declaration of war, or and and I mean, absolutely is there just is there a political benefit there, and and if so, why why the open ended? I mean, why why open ended? Um, Congress always controls the purse strings. Yes. And Vietnam was an authorization of of, of yes, force, right? okay. forces. And and Absolutely. and when people talk about you know lose you know winning every battle in Vietnam but losing the war and things like that, a lot of people forget that um, the Vietnam War ended um, quite frankly because Democrats got elected in a, in a, in, a, in the election of seventy five or seventy four I think it was or whatever, and they took over Congress. And um, they would not fund the war in Vietnam. And when yeah. they pulled the funding back, it was irrelevant what the president well, wanted to do. Yeah. See, well, the AUMF was basically they, a way for the president they, to circumvent Congress. They, right, I was going to say, but yeah. Congress yeah. in Vietnam, they pulled the funding back, which is what caused the... the so the, the AUMF was absolutely established to prevent the president from circumventing Congress. Okay. Okay. This was Congress putting their stamp of approval on military endeavors. But when has Congress ever, okay. in the last, it, since the war on terror, no, no. At, Congress has never um, cut off the, the, the they've never, they've never shut the, shut off the spigot, right? Why? Because. How come? So, well, like, why should I'm, 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 Now I'm asking, like, <laughs> why, right. like during the Bush Be administration, when, when, when senators were getting up and saying the war is lost, you know, and all that how come they weren't able to cut the funding? I'm just, I'm just curious. Well, I mean. well, first and foremost, because whenever, if you look at the war on terror, okay, when we went into to the war on terror, everybody agreed it was the right thing to do. Right. Everybody. Yep. Still. Hillary Clinton voted for it. Still. Ted Kennedy voted for it, right? We truly believe I think. The, yeah. the effort to go after al-Qaeda yep. and Osama bin Laden, yep. Concerned Veterans for America agreed that was absolutely the right moves to do. Right. Okay. But fundamentally, what that led into was a structure. The AUMF is still open. They went into, I believe, it's 41 different countries. Yeah, yeah. Under this authorization yeah. for yeah. use of military force. Yeah. And, and fundamentally, you think about it. We have over 800 bases from radar sites to full-fledged military bases around yeah, the world. Over, all over. We have 200,000 troops that are participating in some level and it's reported up to 170 nations out of 195, okay? So these authorizations for use of military force, especially the 2001, has expanded the military around the world like we've never been. Right. None of our leaders have done this. And so the question is, is we... Well, it was, it was, in the time it didn't seem like it, but now in retrospect it was an overreaction to September 11th in the way that TSA was created. Right. So how do you get retrospect? The changes in AUMFs that Concerned Veterans for America is supporting is A, timeline, B, geographic and mission specific, and third, a separate specific AUMF for any boots on the ground. 
because each one of those would trigger Congress having to have the debate on moving forward on what's best for America's policy and use of the military. Because what we believe in realism and restraint is our foreign policy value. What we believe is the use of diplomacy and the use of the economic ability of America, both in providing funds and restraining funds, okay? These are things that should be constantly used. If you think, and we talked about this but a little the bit Tal earlier. But the, but the Taliban doesn't care about any of that. Well, they do because America is funding Pakistan. Pakistan is funding the Taliban. Okay. So okay. if we stop sending they're, money they're to... They're taking advantage of it. If we that doesn't change If their... we didn't spend money in Pakistan, right. would the Taliban have the additional money to do what well, it's... Well, that's, well that, that's, a, that's, a, that's another issue, um, and I, I did want to mention that earlier, is that, um, you know, we, I'm trying to think of a polite way to say this. I mean, we've got to have some guts when it comes to some of the policies and the way we deal with foreign nations, and here's why I think a lot of people liked Trump. A lot of people liked Trump because Trump was not a pushover. Trump was willing to go and face-to-face with friend or foe, right? Right. He told Angela Merkel, "You are not paying your fair share." NATO. He told all of NATO, "You need to pay up." And guess what? They ended up doing. They ended up paying up. He went to he went to North Korea. Mm -hmm. People thought that was crazy. Trump's like, "I'll talk to the guy, and I'm going to tell him." You know, this is the way it is. Okay. So here's the thing: we 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 lead ourselves to believe. You know, that we're going to work with Turkey, that we're going to work with Pakistan, that they're our allies. Hey, look, if, if you can get some Pakistanis to, to if, you can, if you can buy off some Pakistanis and get them to give you information as to where Osama bin Laden is, hey, that's great. We should be operating and, and have intelligence networks, human intelligence networks all over the place. Right. But let's never forget, these people, they do not share our interests. They're not our friends. They're not even our allies. Turkey shouldn't even be in uh, it shouldn't even be with us in NATO. Um, <clears throat> is it, it's, it's NATO, right? That Turkey's part of now, I, I or or, or is it the? Uh, I'm trying to think. Turkey's in NATO, right? I don't remember. Um, the um, uh, we our partnership with Turkey has not helped us out. Our partnership with Pakistan has been, I think, counterproductive. Um, and we need to be honest with these people, and we need to tell these countries if we catch you helping the Taliban then there will be severe consequences, and, 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 and that's what Trump would have said. Yeah. One, one other thing about the generals, because you mentioned yes. the, the, the generals. Um, you know, a private that loses his weapon gets in more trouble than a general that loses a war. Absolutely. And we need to go back to where, you know, it was kind of like with, when Lincoln, during the Civil War, was wanting results. He was... He was having problems with generals being too defensive, not being enough in, on the offense. And he wanted to end the war as quickly as possible. Right. And he was willing to fire generals. Our modern-day politicians, quite frankly, are scared of these guys. A lot of them are scared of them. I know Obama was. He was way in yeah. over his head, right? These are professional military officers. They do know what they're talking about, and, and you need to listen to them. Sure. But ultimately, you're the president. And if they're not getting the job done, you need to fire them. Yeah. And the last thing... Well, I, I to like, that note, yeah. I mean, you know, Obama uh, 
because he, let's say, feared him, them or just respected them enough to yeah. at least take their word for what yeah. they were telling him, you know, was responsible for the surge, you know, which, again, proved no results. I mean, if anything, it actually set us back. Well, but now remember, okay, but so, so here's what Obama did, though. Stanley McChrystal came in, and I think he asked for 60000 Okay, now he's in charge of the effort in Afghanistan. If you don't believe him, then don't have him in charge, okay? Obama, I think, gave him 40000 Why is that? On the basis of what knowledge did Obama decide, you know, General McChrystal, I appreciate the recommendation, but I'm going to give you 40. Well, that's political. That's, a, that's an insecure civilian who wants to show the military that I'm not going to be a rubber stamp. So he doesn't give them the, the, the forces that he needs. But the other thing I would like to see us bring back, and this would be very controversial and no one would go for it, um, from our, the last times when we were wildly successful in war, which was really World War II, and, 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 uh, which was World War II, really, um, is the rotations that we do, I actually think, are problematic. Now, as a guy who deployed for a year in the very beginning and did not get to go home on leave, okay? Right. Because we hadn't started that yet, and we did it by rank, and it never made it to me, so I didn't get to go home on leave. Um, I would hate to have spent four years in Iraq, okay? But if the war in Iraq had only lasted four years, that would have been more humanitarian for the Iraqis, and it would have been less costly and less painful for the United States, with less injuries, less killed, and less destruction to both of our economies. And so I would think that we should look at stopping this rotation because the generals get in there. They've only got 12 to 18 months. What do you expect sure. them well, to do? Yeah. And it's a brain dump every 12 to 18 months. This was... 20 one-year wars in Afghanistan. That's right. And, That's and, right. And they know, and and the Taliban's still there. Oh, yeah. Well, And what you they know? say, you guys they have the watch, leave. we have the time. But the reality, though, and, and but this is yep. more to the fact, if you look into the history of Jefferson and, and the Tripoli pirates, he went to Congress, and Congress agreed with his action of going to Tripoli to deal with them. And basically, they funded money to them, specifically to go do that battle. We need to have a Congress that is properly engaged because, again, they are the representatives of their people who are in the military who are going to war and fighting these battles. But you see a disconnected Congress that is more worried about poking each other in the eye than they are worried about the fact that men and women are deployed all around. I mean, think right now in Iraq, we have... 25 or so, you can never trust what the numbers are coming out of the military, 2,500 or so troops that are sitting over there being attacked by drones from Iran. To what benefit of our nation's forward movement? What is it that is our nation's benefit that is coming from that? Well, you have an Iraq government. Well, it's probably intelligence gathering. Then let's use like intelligence. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just let's saying, use the intelligence asking, gathering. What's the benefit? Let's get the military that. out of there. Let's use the alternatives that we have, and you know well that there's a lot of counterintelligence al alternatives to use, okay? And let's admit it, the military should not be used. I mean, they are using the military as the hammer, as if everything around the world was a nail. Well, I, I can tell you how to prevent us from ever having a 20-year war or a 10-year war, for that matter, maybe even five, and that is require a declaration of war, number one, 
Okay, so that brings in political will. Okay, make sure that the politicians are on board. And liability. And liability. Mm -hmm. Number two, um, have a draft. Reinstate the draft because because if you if you are reinstating the draft, it forces America to be involved in the conflict. It forces America to care right. because every mother and father that has a 16, 17, 18 year old, 20, 21, 22, you know, something like that, they're all concerned now about this war and whether or not we should be in it or not. That's number two. And number three, you fight until you win and you don't go home until it's over. And you do that and, and you will have things like, like World War II where you had a massive nationwide effort to defeat an enemy, unconditional surrender, get it done, and get the hell out of it. Because everyone had skin in the game. everybody had skin in the game, and right. everybody wants to go home. And the problem that we have today, and, you know, working for CVA and things like that, maybe um, Jimmy feels this, but, like, there's only about, I'm trying to think of the number, there's about 500,000 on active duty in the Army, probably about a million reserve when you add it to Marine Corps, like 250, something like that. Active. So when you add in all the reserve and active, I, I, think, I think we're looking like at about 3, 4 million, 5 million total. Soldiers, oh, I, airmen, I, Coast Guard, everything. Yeah. So let, let's say there's three to five million in the active and reserve, something like that. Well, there's 330 million people in the country now. So really what you're saying is, is you have one, maybe two percent of the country that has true skin in the game that could potentially be deployed. Mm -hmm. That's number one. And if you look at their, if you take their parents, uh, okay, let's expand it to the parents because every, every parent loves the concern about their kid. Okay, so now you've got 10 million people. You've got 10 to 15 million people out of an entire nation of 320 million. So, you know, you're not, you're not even at 5% yet of the country that's got real skin in the game yeah. for these wars. And that's how, you, that's how you have a popular initiative. That's, that's how the country's all together. You get everybody together or we don't go at all. And so if people are together on, on the operation... Okay, then you've got the country support behind you. And it's not just this feel good, we support the troops. No, we're supporting the troops because we're all involved somehow. Yeah. You know, whether physically or emotionally. And then, and, and that's how you also end up um, uh, having shorter conflicts. Yeah. You know, so Joe, I don't disagree with you, but I'll go back to the, the key philosophy is that realism and restraint. We are constantly seeing the military deployed around the world for various reasons, okay? Sure, sure. So from the time of World War II all the way through from the Congo to Haiti to Grenada to Panama to all these different deployments around the right, world, right. a good part of that tends to be where we're trying to impose our values, our beliefs. And if we have a philosophy of realism and restraint, okay, A, does this action benefit America? And that has to be the very first question. Whatever we're going to do with the military, how does that benefit? So before we even come to the point of declaring war on anybody for anything, how does that benefit America? But see, by, and the, then, by declaring war, it's a, it, declaring war is, a, is a, almost like a moral statement. No, no, I, I get it. You right? don't really win unless you declare yeah. war. Right. But again... Well, it, it commits you. you. Well, it, it commits you because now you have to win or you've lost the war. We, we kind of like, I think, as a country, I actually, I actually think the policymakers like the ability to send troops all around the world and do stuff, and, and I'm not suggesting we don't need to, 
Um, but then I think I think actually our population kind of likes that. It's kind of like out of sight, out of mind. Military's out there doing their thing. God bless the troops. But as long as we don't really have to like deal with it. Yeah, we don't have to get our hands and, dirty. And now we're watching TV, well, and everybody's also, like, oh, my God, what's yeah. going on in Afghanistan? I mean, guys, we've been there 20 years. Yeah. Right. Well, now it's also it's the self-righteousness of saying that we are the world's police, as we used to say. You know, that we are the peacekeepers or spreading democracy. You know, I think, you know, as Americans, especially those who aren't directly affected by it, like kind of wear that as a badge of honor, you know. It's yeah. like, you know, and, that, and that, that to them justifies our, our presence globally. So you think about it. Go back to the 800 different military facilities around the world that the U.S. has, Okay. The next closest, and this is a, a cumulative, is 30. So the Australians, the Brits, and others cumulatively have 30 wow. around the world. Okay, mm -hmm. So that is us in a magnitude far above everybody telling the world that you should live an American way of life. That, you know, and, and people are like, listen, you know, this, this helps stabilize the world. Well, the reality is we spent... Two trillion in Afghanistan. We spent two trillion in Iraq. Are we any more popular in the Middle East now right. than we've ever been? The see, answer I, is see, absolutely I, I, see, not. I don't care. I don't care if we're popular. Um, I, that, that, I take a, but a it little, just shows that it's yeah. failed. It's well, a failed policy, well, Joe. Well, what, but they spent popular? that money. They sent the troops. Yeah. Well, but that's what, still, but that's but just the point. Middle Joe's, East Joe's, hates Joe's, us. Uh, Joe's saying that. But, but that. Uh, that's if, if if we have a if we have an objective. Right. If our objective as a country, okay, let's go back to we'll go back to Iraq. I know it was ambiguous. People, by the way, I mean there were chemical weapons there, but whatever. Um, we didn't know. We didn't find the Scud missile that was aimed at, you know, Riyadh or something. But, right. but anyway, um, we decided to take out Saddam, right or wrong. Okay, we decided to do it. Okay, once that's your decision, you can't care what everybody. It's not a poll. We're not going to go into Iraq and then do a yeah. poll. Right. Okay. Actually, if we would have done a poll, you would you would show that they would be happy because about eighty percent of the country is not Sunni, so they would have been fine with that. But I mean, the point is, is that that's the mentality of, well, we've got to win their hearts and minds, and we want everybody to look. One of the biggest mistakes that we made was when we tried to convince our enemies to love us. Yes. They are not going to love us. They don't need to. We need them to respect us for what we're doing. We need them to uh, leave us alone and, and understand that the consequences are severe. That's why we're here, okay? And also... They need, we need to sh set an example. So we're a country that, for, for our own faults or whatever, the world looks up to us because we have rule of law and we have, uh, by and large, social and economic freedom. So if you come to the United States, who your father is is irrelevant. Right. And the country actually gets excited about people coming over whose father may have not been of any status in your former country, but now you've become very successful in America. We love that, and we support that. The rest of the world knows that, yeah. and that's why they want to be here. Yeah. Okay, but if you can't be here, what we'll do is we'll, we'll help you have a framework in your country where at least you have an opportunity to be free to your own success or failure. The Afghan women right now, they, I mean, they're in their home. They can't come out. They can't go outside. Right. They don't have any autonomy as a human being. 
Right. If that's not immoral and the world can't see that, then I don't know. Then then yeah, I, I don't know what to tell you. They're instantly in harm's way. But so, but, and, so and, no one can on, say yeah. that we're wrong. So for, it, it's never it's never not a good thing to pull someone out of that circumstance. Now we can't be the world police, right? Because what you what you have to realize is Molly right now is probably um, because as demonstrated by the U.S. Department's right. uh, report on terrorism is the number one terrorist nation. Okay. Okay. So you have a whole other nation because that is failed, like that because they have a failed government and they're like are then they, you are have they training Al Qaeda and then you have and then you okay. have places that have things like Boko Haram and how they treat women. Right. So. Right. We can't use our military to go into every single country around right. the world right, right. to free women. Okay? True. What we can do is support governments economically yep. Yep. and diplomatically that are like-minded and strengthen yep. them in and, those and, regions. And, and that, that's and, what we and, should be doing. That, that, supports, that supports my other uh, uh, view on uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, which is that counterinsurgency operations... All right, what we know is coin on large, massive scales, in my humble opinion, does not work. Yeah. Privates in the Army are, have a basic level of military knowledge. They're there to follow orders and fight countries' battles. Your E-4s, okay, just above a private, those are guys that are kicking in doors, okay? Our military is simply not designed on a massive scale to conduct these embedded missions. Petraeus disagrees with me. I don't care. Um, Iraq is not that great right now, yeah. okay, even though I supported the surge. Um, the special operations community, that's what historically they have done. That is their mission. You have highly trained NCOs and officers that have gone through years of training just to get to that point. They all have language skills, communication skills, intelligence gathering skills, weapon skills, demolition. They all have, they, 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 these 12-man teams all have lots of skills operated at a high level in austere environments by themselves. They have the ability to go in and operate and partner with governments that are willing to, to, to you know, defend themselves, right? Yeah. We can't do that with 500,000 troops. We can conquer a country with 500,000 troops, right. and we can occupy a country successfully with 500,000 troops, but that's not sustainable. And yeah. at some point in time, you have to shift the mission. Yeah. So you're demonstrating realism, because the, the, the whole goal is to look at the world as a whole and realize where the appropriate use of military force is that will benefit America, okay? And if we want to see a stable Africa, as an example right now, Africa is the predominant continent where terrorism is growing, okay? And it's been there for decades. I mean, you think back in the Somalia and what happened to Black Hawk Down, that was actually Muslim terrorist organizations that were working in that area that helped plan all these things out and to fight America. So the, the reality is using the military in the appropriate areas in the appropriate amount is realistic. Yeah, sure. You know, and the restraint aspect is also what you demonstrated by sending out, you know, E1 through E4, Joe Snuffy, or, you know, uh, whatever, whoever, in mechanized light, whatever it is, into a combat zone to try to, you know, 
deal with things in a counterinsurgency way does not work. That is a mid-level, a mid-intensity conflict aspect. High intensity, mid-intensity, low intensity is more scripted towards the special operations and should be left to that. And also, the fact that you demonstrated something that's really important for governments that want us there. We tend to force our way into governments and situations around the world that don't necessarily want us there. Mm -hmm. But also, think about this in realism and restraint. All right, so Jonathan has the might of the United States military behind him, okay? So Jonathan, at this point right now, no matter what you did in the world, around your neighborhood, to the country surrounding you, you have the military might of the United States behind you. What is it more likely in the aspect that you might go poke your neighbors in the eye? Now, we are affecting foreign countries by having military there. You don't have to negotiate with your neighbors because we have your back. And we talk about you know, the, the whole aspect of building countries. We go into these countries that we have these bases in that if somebody was to attack them, right away the U.S. would defend them. You're saying that the presence of the U.S. military perverts like foreign diplo like diplomacy amongst foreign Absolutely. nations. Absolutely. Yeah. So you think about that. So foreign nation diplomacy gets, like you said, perverted by artificially being back. So think about this right now. We are in Germany right now to protect Germany against an attack by Russia. Right. As Germany is making economic deals to buy gas from Russia. Yep, because we're being taken advantage of, which is something that guys like Trump didn't let, wasn't letting happen. So think that's about why that. they didn't like him. If Germany is doing that, how many other countries that we have troops oh, sure, in sure. do that same exact thing? Sure. Where is the realism and restraint in our foreign policy? Because right now we are seeing this happen in one of our largest allies. Yeah. Can you imagine in Africa where this is happening? Where well, we're putting the fact, well, the found, money the there? Found, the founders cautioned us. I mean, they, they cautioned. Thomas Absolutely. Jefferson ca cautioned us about foreign entanglements. I Washington mean, you know, did, too. They, I mean, they, they all cautioned against that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, here we, here we are. Well, let me, uh, let me go ahead and reset the conversation. Thank you, everybody, for watching this uh, special edition of The Yard Sign. We're talking about Afghanistan. Joining me today, uh, our good friend and regular on the show, Joe Wicker, Army veteran and uh, former state representative, uh, former county commissioner in Citrus County, and now the coalition's director for Concerned Veterans of America, uh, Jimmy T. Smith. And uh, so we're, we're, you know, obviously trying to tackle a big topic here. Um, uh, I did want to kind of bring the conversation back, you know, being that, that Joe uh, touched on the effect that, you know, large, a, lot, a lot of people are voicing uh, their sentiments on in regards to how women are being affected. But I actually want to expand the conversation a, a little bit broader to, um, to, again, an issue that many people are also very concerned about in all of this. Uh, which is not only the women and, and girls uh, that are being affected by this, but the many uh, consultants and translators and, and, and resource uh, operators, if you want to call them, uh, you know, that are from Afghanistan that were helpful in our operations there. And, you know, not even just the United States. I mean, there was a story uh, today in one of the major media outlets talking about how, um, 
you know, those that were supporting the British uh, army uh, and their efforts, how the UK basically said, sorry, there's nothing we can do for you. Yeah, As really they were literally yeah. being escorted to the airport, yeah. um, you know, and basically just left them there, uh, hanging high and dry. So, Joe, I know you've expressed, you know, some sentiments, uh, you know, privately, you know, about some of the people that you got to work with on the ground in Iraq, uh, you know, and then, and Jimmy, from, from your experience and those that you've talked to, how does that also affect our veterans? Um, and, and how does that also just affect the military as a whole in regards to uh, what's being observed here globally uh, to how we're treating those that have helped us in this conflict for so long? So Sam Rogers, um, who is one of our um, coalition's director out west, mm -hmm. basically did uh, an article on the USA Today. Great article, because he demonstrated that one of his interpreters actually saved his life. But he also demonstrated that leaving Afghanistan was the right answer. Uh, if you get a chance, please look it up. Uh, the name is Sam Rogers, USA Today. I think it was either um, yesterday or the day before. We should do all we can to demonstrate if you're going to partner with America, we have your back. Right. We absolutely should. Now, again, we're going to go back and we're going to find um, where people... So it's really hard to go into a country, okay, to where this person has went home and there is no street address. It's that third house down from the mosque on the left. Okay, it's about the best directions you're going to get in Afghanistan. Okay, I'll say in Iraq they have street addresses. It's, it's, <laughs> it's pretty so, it's interesting. You know? So when I, you know, when I talk to the Afghan veterans, they're they're telling me there there's no such thing as address. There's a clump right. of houses. Yeah, sure, right? sure, sure. So there's this presumption that we should know where everybody is to get them all out. Okay, it's much harder than people think it is. Okay, so okay. there's well, the logistical well, I, aspect. Well, I, well, I, I I can tell you um, so. So I was on a 12-man advisory team. We had four interpreters. So two Sunnis, a Shia, and a Lebanese Christian. Mm. Okay. Um, I don't know if they were given to us in that way specifically, but it was smart. Okay. Um, just keep everybody honest. You know? um, <laughs> but uh, we, we, did, we trusted our interpreters, I think, as much as you should trust someone who's not wearing the red, white, and blue. Okay, and they did carry weapons. Our interpreters had AK-47s, and they sat behind us in vehicles. So I mean, we we did trust them. Um, many of them had served for years. Okay, and the deal for them was five years, and you get a visa. Um, we gave them fake names, right, for obvious reasons, and we did not. Um, some of them we didn't know their real names. And I will tell you, I have no clue where they lived in town. So, and part of that was just, I mean, kind of, they didn't need me to know, you know, where they lived. Sure. Um, and I think part of a lot of that also is just security, right? Yeah. If, if one of those people, if one of the interpreters got kidnapped, it was better for them to not know anything about the other interpreter, right? Just so that it's just for safety, right? Sure. Reasons, right? Need to know. So... Uh, I couldn't tell you how to go get them. I mean, we had this one interpreter. I thought we called him Freddie. He was Shia. I had another one we called Knight. He was Sunni. I, I can't tell you where they lived. Now, one time I was on mission, and uh, the Sunni actually told me, he said, yeah, I live around here. Like, 
I can tell you. Like, what's <laughs> and so, you know, I found out. I was like, oh, this is your hood. Okay, well, then tell them, you know, da 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 like, you know. But, I mean, so, no, there'd be no way that, that any of us, and we worked with them. So, unless somebody at headquarters somehow had an address or right. knew, and I'm sure somebody does somewhere, mm-hmm. because we had to vet them to a certain degree. Right. So, I'm sure that through their background check, we've got some information but I think in Iraq, it, that was easier to do. Like you said, in Afghanistan, with it being just so remote, it's probably a lot harder. And with the chaos that's going on, um, it's probably not easy. And, of course, they got to get to you. But I, I consider it a total failure on the administration. Why you would not say to these interpreters, hey, listen, you need to be making your way to Kabul. Don't make a fuss about it, right. but you need to like start making your way to Kabul. I'm not saying we're leaving tomorrow, yeah. but we might be leaving tomorrow. Like, we should have g- given them plenty of heads up. Sure. And as far as, right. like, from a veteran, like, almost like, if you, I, hate, I hate to say it, mental health, but, like, the way veterans feel about it, I think many of them do kind of extend to the interpreter the uh, ethos that we would have as a soldier, which is we're not leaving anybody behind. Yeah, well, that's really what I was getting at, which is that relationship that's built, that trust that's built over time, you know, because friendships, at least, you know, to an extent are made. I can tell you for a fact that if if, if, if when I was in Iraq, if one of our interpreters would have gotten captured and we would have had any intelligence whatsoever, I can promise you we would have been rolling. And we would have went in guns blazing to get that dude out. Right. We that they were that important to us. Yeah. And you got to give the interpreter credit. They don't have to do that. Sure. They don't have to do that. And in fact, the the you figure someone in the Middle East that speaks fluent English. Okay. This is an educated person. How do you get educated in the Middle East? Well, your parents are probably somehow connected. Or you have money, mm-hmm. or you're in the right clique of some kind. So right off the bat, they don't really have to do this, yeah. right? They're choosing to do this. Yes, they're being paid. Yes, they have an opportunity at a better life. But they're still they making a big sacrifice. This, but mean, they're still making a huge sacrifice, yeah. and they know that them and their entire family. So you can bet that the insurgents not. I mean, the um, the interpreter is not just the person you're dealing with. Their family's involved in that. Yeah. Well, but, you know? so imagine this. There's, there's, again, I'm going to go back to the AUMS, but, so, one of the things that is really important is, yes, this is definitely specifically affecting the mental health of certain veterans, okay? And, you know, and, and sadly, and there's others that are like, well, you know, they never really connected with their interpreter and stuff like that because that wasn't their job and their mission. They were separate. Sure. But, Imagine, though, if the AUMFs were done in such a way that were time-limited, mission-specific, that congressmen and women would be involved to make sure they had the civilian oversight over the military prior to the close of these operations. But there wasn't. There was a blanket check to go to war. And again, so the AUMFs, okay, and... You know, the whole declaration wars, of course, obviously that's more of a discussion. But the AUMFs is specific to the mission and specific to a time limit would have said, okay, here's your time limit and we're closing down this war. What is your plan? 
And they would have had to tell that plan to Congress. And they would have had to have it well-researched, well-funded, and proper. And I think this is one of the things you're going to find in the after-actions. The lack of a proper AUMF has caused or been part of the reason that the entirety of the Afghan fiasco from start to finish, talk about the Afghan papers to now the closing of the war in Afghan, okay? I think you're going to find that the AUMF is part and parcel to the failure of American foreign policy. Well, sure, because, I mean, we saw basically what President Biden did was he, he started that ticking clock. He started that countdown clock. And whether they had a plan or not, which obviously we seem to see that there was very little in much of an actual plan um, to to get out of there in a safe and timely manner, um, you know, has really kind of led to the problems we're seeing today. I think you're going to see right now you're seeing a bipartisan support for the changes in the AUMFs, for repealing AUMFs. There's actually Republicans who are far to the right and there's liberal Democrats who are far to the left that uniformly agree that Congress needs to pull its power back from the executive branch. Well, that goes back to, I think, the earlier part of the conversation where, again, our appetite in regards to this type of military conflict has changed dramatically, I think, overall as a nation. Um, and, uh, you know, and again, like we were brought into 9-11, yep. you know, not, you know, by, by our choosing. Um, and and that's kind of what got us to where we are today, unfortunately, because, again, a lot of decisions were made. And look, I mean, not to get off topic, but I think the reason there is such a large distrust in the government, and we're seeing it plainly here, is because we can't trust them. We couldn't trust these generals for the past 20 years to give us an accurate assessment of what was happening on the ground. And, and, and to what extent Congress knew that as well, I think is also worth looking into, because... I'll tell you, from working in Senator Rubio's office, I sat down with a government contractor that provided services in Afghanistan to the helicopters. You know, you know, they're talking about the Blackhawks, and there was these uh, Russian helicopters that were primarily what was being used in Afghanistan. This company was responsible for the maintenance, the repair, and the training of Afghanis to fly them. Um, and this was years ago, and they were saying, yeah, like, these people can barely read, much less fly a Blackhawk, okay? Um, you know, they're, they're able to learn the Russian one, you know, because it's a little easier to fly, it's more mechanical, but the level of technology that these Blackhawks had was far beyond yeah. what the Afghanis were able, were, were capable right. of understanding. Right, right. Um, and so, you know, w one of the things that I heard in preparing for this conversation today uh, was in a conversation of kind of how we got here, was that, we were trying to train their military the way we would train our military here with a fraction of the resources and the education and, the, the again, just some of the innate physical requirements. But, that, um, but that, just, that, just, that just adds to what I was saying about when we start feeling good about them doing things you know for themselves yeah in the very beginning and for the first five years or maybe even 10 years there should have been no discussions about them running anything right it's, you're going to go to school we are going to teach you there's not going to be any madrasas there's not going to be any of that and, and and in america we view it as an as an american value to allow people to you know practice their religions and things like that and, and i'm not saying be anti-culture and anti-religion but 
we're trying to get a job done. Yeah. And so we, you're going to need pilots in the future to be able to secure your own country. You're going to need pilots. So guess right. what? We're going to go find the, the, the smartest 15-year-olds we can, you know, and we're going to start training them now. Right. And in about four years from now, they're going to be pilots, you know, and we just weren't willing to force on them certain things that needed to happen because that feels wrong to us. It feels anti-democratic. Mm -hmm. Well, what did you conquer a nation for then? Right. You don't. You you conquered them so that you could turn around and give them the the keys to the city. I mean, what we conquered was the Taliban. Right. But the Taliban was operating in essentially a, a non, almost a non-existent. Uh, you could say it's a failed state, but it's almost a non-existent state. And so you can't conquer them and then expect everybody to take over. The, we did this in Iraq with the Shia. Right. The Shia in Iraq were, although they're the majority numerically, they were a they were basically political um, minority. a political minority because Saddam was Sunni, mm -hmm. and many of them were kept out of government. They were kept out of education, and so when they won the elections overnight, you had. But it was obvious they were going to win. They're 60% of the country, and they're sure. going to vote for their clan. Right. So overnight, the people who had never ran a country were now running a country. Yeah. We, that's malpractice on our part. They're, we're the ones that gave them the opportunity to have the election in the first place. So we set them up for those conditions. We should have been able to think ahead and see that that wasn't yeah. going to work out. Again, go back to mission-specific. What was the mission going into Afghanistan was to get al-Qaeda. So, and, and truthfully, I'll, I'll suggest that we didn't beat the Taliban. They faded back and waited us yeah, they were, reassessed. Yeah, I mean, they, they, there's they actually, retreated to Pakistan. There's actually video yeah. of them recording attacks on us as they continue to grow and get better and stronger and stuff like that. And yeah, in sure. Iraq, and sure. the same of thing. Of course, of course. Yeah. They weren't stupid. They came in, they realized that they were having issues. And, and mind you, again, we got in the middle of a civil war and we chose a side. Okay, we got in the middle of the Civil War and said, you know, we're going to take the, the northern whatever it was called and we're going we're gonna to fight the Taliban because the Taliban will not give us al-Qaeda. At the point to where Osama bin Laden was captured, if we would have had a mission specific to A, devastate al-Qaeda, and B, capture Osama bin Laden, capture or kill Osama bin Laden, if that would have been the mission, within months of yeah. us concluding that, yeah. we would have left that country. And that civil war right. would have continued, but it just did. Right. So we paused a civil war. We established through trillions of dollars and thousands of American lives an artificial government that was based on our philosophies and not theirs. And then we're surprised when it all falls down. Well, un unfortunately, there is a perverse financial incentive for wars to continue. Yeah. And, and that's, I mean... You're going Eisenhower's to, warning. Yeah, you're going to have you're going to have a need for contractors and things like that. I'm not suggesting that it's wrong that someone has a company and they provide food for soldiers or do whatever they're doing rebuilding. But 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 the the opportunity to make money in, in war can't be so perverse that people have a a, a, a necessity to stay there. I mean, cuz if you think about it, um, if, you're, if your job is to build buildings and the insurgency is destroying buildings that you're building, I mean, you make money by building buildings. So right. is, it a, is a successful insurgency, as long as you're not getting killed, I mean, is it really counter to your business 
it's not. It, it's yeah. financially lucrative. So I don't know how you take that out, but there there just can't be uh, more more of uh, there can't be more benefit to continuing the war than there is to ending the war. Well, and and, and that that's a, there's a big the big issue. Well, you well, take it out by you take it out by putting in timelines yeah. to where you only have this authorization for this force in this country for yeah. this time frame. Because at that point, Congress can look back at all the bills. Well, and then they tell you Congress a little bit can, longer, well, we're just about to turn the corner. I mean, how many right. times did a general say to but, Congress, well, we're making improvements, you know? But at yes, least, ma no ma'am. At yes, least there yes, has yes, to be yes, then yes, a vote yeah. of the body that represents individuals back home. And then, yeah. because of that, the news cycles will generate the conversation that allows people like you and I to see what's going on and then fundamentally give input to our elected leaders. Yeah. That's what missed what's out of this entire but, war. But in addition to Joe's point about the military industrial complex, right, mm -hmm. which is what you were basically saying right. without right. saying it specifically, you know, there's also now these reports that, you know, this, this in many ways what might have also been a huge money laundering, you know, uh, you know, scheme among, you know, multiple you can bet nations. Lots of money lost. You know, bet to that. you know, running money through Pakistan, running money through Afghanistan, exchanging it for government contractors, warlords. I mean, the trillions of dollars that that have run through this conflict, um, and and so I think aside from the surface level beneficiaries, which, as Joe just mentioned, is our military industrial complex, which again is going to hit our economy incredibly hard because now all of a sudden there's going to be a slowdown of need for for those tanks and uh, that type of equipment that's produced, you know, in the Rust Belt and the Midwest, you know, and, and uh, but also, you know, those people who were nefarious and their reasons for wanting to prolong this the, this conflict are going to find somewhere else to do it. Yeah. And where, where is that going to be? And that kind of leads me to what I wanted to close the conversation on, because this has been great, and we, I'm sure we could keep going for hours. Um, but what is next? You know, what does is, what is the continued fallout in Afghanistan look like? And where does our standing globally look like? So here, here's the thing I'll suggest to you, is people are being short in their, in their you know, theory that America is no longer a leader on the national state or the, the global stage, mm -hmm. okay? Because we lost in Vietnam and we recovered. By the 80s, we were again the world's leaders, okay? So within a short five to six year time frame, mm -hmm. America was that. What I would suggest is from the Bay of Pigs to the Vietnam War to Somalia and other things that fundamentally People said, oh, America is no longer this. Yeah. I mean, think about it. In, in Somalia, they came out and said, we are a paper tiger. Right. In Lebanon, when they bombed the Marines, and Reagan made the smart decision to instead of continue to stay, which he swore he was going to stay, he subsequently changed his mind and brought the troops out. And people were like, oh, America is losing its strength and might. And then he subsequently used over the horizon capabilities, and remember when he bombed Gaddafi. Right. He didn't use troops on the ground. Right. And it raised our stakes again to international leadership by the American might that we had to be able to do that. Yeah. So in the short term, yes, we just got a huge black eye. 
But anybody who's ever got a black eye will know it will heal. Right. Well, the in in the Middle East, like I said in the beginning, you know, they they very much are eye for an eye, and you have to understand, you know, you have to under, know yourself and know your enemy, right? You have to understand who you're dealing with. These people will drag you into, uh, you know, a conflict that you don't really want to be in, mm -hmm. and where the and where the the outcomes are really not that beneficial for the country, which is why when we've done limited actions with a clear objective and a clear in-state, okay, which is kind of military jargon, but there's an in-state. It's like, this occurs, it's over, right? right? When you've achieved that, um, we have good stories to tell. Desert Storm was one of those, right? you know? And, it's, and, and the American population for many years said, oh, we should, never should have stopped. Well, you know, George H.W. Bush, for, his, for, for whatever criticisms you want to give the guy, um, you know, he also had to bail out of an aircraft um, over the Pacific Ocean. Okay, the dude understands, you know, the horrors of, of warfare, mm -hmm. and he had a clear objective in Desert Storm. We achieved that objective overwhelmingly, and then we said, "Okay, that's it. We're out." And you can argue that, well, there's these residual problems from that, and blah blah. Okay, well. There's always going to be trade-offs. Right. right. And there's always going to be trade-offs. And, and, and when we determined what that end state was, we maintained the initiative. We remain in charge. And uh, from, a, uh, from a, I guess, just a perspective of our reputation, it helps us maintain our reputation. It's only when we depart from that right. that we get ourselves drug into these things do we then not get to end things on our own terms? And I would argue that we're not really ending Afghanistan necessarily on our own terms because I don't think this is what people expected no, it to yeah, go. Right. But, but what you're demonstrating was the years from Reagan through Bush of the Weinberger Doctrine that fundamentally went away mm -hmm. for, the, um, for the neocons and the war hawks of both sides right. that thought that the use of uh, the military was was the only answer to everything, everything. Yeah. So the Weinberger Doctrine basically went away when 9-11 happened and, and we basically had the neocons and the, the far left with this philosophy of allowing us to spread the military larger around the world than we've ever been. But I think what you're gonna see now because of what's happening in Afghanistan is the discussion of realism and restraint and how to bring our nation back to a foreign policy. Because if you think about it, if you ask anybody right now, what is our nation's foreign policy? I don't think anybody can actually describe it. No. But realism right. and restraint is a foreign policy that, you know, um, so Will Ruger, who was um, President Trump's nominee to be the ambassador to Afghanistan, okay? If you look on his uh, Twitter feed, he articulates reason and restraint so very well. And you're finding more and more leaders around the world who are starting to listen to this, senators, congressmen and women, and things like this. And I think that, and CVA is supporting this, that this philosophy of foreign policy will put us in the correct position moving forward. Don't be afraid to use the military. Don't ever be afraid to use the military. Sure. But if you use the military for any reasons, it should have a benefit to the United States as a whole, okay? And if it is part of our overall foreign policy benefits, understandably, but then go back to also needing the changes of the AUMFs so that 
you know, we do over the horizon capabilities. That we um, engage the enemy no longer than a certain time frame and that we have a specific mission. And last but not least, uh, well, not only that, geographically, that we restrain ourselves so we're no longer going country to country to country to country with troops and nobody in Congress is talking about it. And last is the aspect, if ever mm -hmm. boots are put on the ground, it has to be a specific authorization for use of military force because what was all this closing of Afghanistan about? The withdrawal, right. not of the Air Force, not in the Navy, the withdrawal of boots on the ground. Right. Boots on the ground are the one fundamental thing because you're putting the lives of Americans in jeopardy. Well, we, we, have, to, we have to, whenever you engage in, in, in military conflict, you have to want to win as bad, if not worse, than your enemy does. And in Afghanistan, and, and to a lesser degree, I guess, I, the insurgency in Iraq, um, um, you, if, you know, like the Afghani, like the Afghan insurgency, the Taliban, they didn't have to win, they just had to not lose. Mm -hmm. right. And that's their backyard, Right, and so you're already at an initial disadvantage, and we understand that, and we overcome a lot of that because of our, you know, technological capabilities. But I'm gonna tell you what, you know, people people look at, I think of Joe Biden when he's talking about guns and gun owners, right, saying, oh, how can you defeat the United States? What do you got? You got F-15s, you got nuclear bombs, and I think as a soldier, you know, th those things sound foolish to soldiers or old soldiers, you know, like myself and you know, like the former rep here, because um, what we know is that a small force, right, that's wearing nothing but a man dress and sandals and has an AK-47 who's committed to their cause can wreak havoc on the greatest military force that's ever existed on this earth. Hmm. As a soldier, I, I have to respect you have to respect your enemy and their capabilities. Sure. And so when we don't want it as bad as they do, right off the bat, you know, you're in trouble because you've already mentally or psychologically, you've kind of decided that you're willing to lose. And at some point in time in Afghanistan, I, I don't know when, but at some point in time, we basically decided that we were okay with this not working out the like we thought it it would sure and at the time that that's where you you get okay which sometimes perhaps you know yeah may, maybe the reality of your strategy isn't going to work and you and you have to change strategies or you have to decide that you know you're going to do something completely different which maybe leave altogether but at but you can't tell me that we just figured that out we figured that out a long time ago sure and yeah. so if you're not willing to do as much as it takes to win as your enemy, then you should never fight that war. And I would submit to you that, again, the last time we did that was probably World War II because we were willing to destroy every single building on our way to Berlin. The 8th Air Force will tell you that's what they did. Right. And we were willing to kill 
as many people as it took. And Americans don't like this. We can't stomach that. The idea that innocent people, women and children, would die at the hands of Americans or anyone in a war. But I hate to tell you, that is war. Right. So if you're not willing and if you're not committed to, to do as much destruction as necessary to achieve victory, then you should never start and set foot in that country. Yeah. Because if that's the way you are, if, they, if, you, if you're not dedicated like that, you're not going to win. Yeah. You know, Joe, there's a lot of, of uh, veterans who I've talked to, both from Iraq and Afghanistan, that have talked about how the women and children were pushed out in front of men's oh, with guns. Sure. Yeah. And why we're bunch, not, we're not little, appreciative of what Curtis LeMay did in World War II. I mean, think about the things that people said about him. Matter of fact, Dr. Strangelove, I think, was about him. But the reality is... You're talking about the commander of the, the 8th Air Force. Commander of the 8th yeah, okay. Air Force who, in World War II. who went in and bombed the parts factories that were in the middle of cities. Yeah. Right. And knew that there was going to be they, casualties. We knew there would be casualties, yeah. But the reality is this. That discussion needs to happen in Congress, and it doesn't. Well, it's cultural. Congress, it's cultural too, though. We right. have an obsession. We have an obsession, and I saw it in the military again. That sorry to interrupt. This goes no, no. back to. But this mind goes you, back I grew to up, loving. This goes back up, to hearts and minds. I grew up old army. Um, so when I first joined in the infantry, my veterans who taught me how to fight were Vietnam veterans. Okay. And the technique so. was spray and pray. Okay. okay. All right. Right. Yeah. And we, and we definitely don't believe right. in that now. We have an obsession so, with precision and limiting collateral damage. And if you if if you're not willing to have collateral damage, then you shouldn't be going to war. Well, I'll give you this. Because war itself creates collateral damage. One of the worst things is is that somehow America thinks that every strategy, such as the withdrawal, yeah. should be announced and broadcast. On the TV. I mean, think about going yeah. into Somalia. Yeah. They landed on the beach, and the TV was there recording it. Yeah. Okay? The reality is, war should be, yeah. to some extent, outside of the norm of what we as the American society see, because it is a nasty thing. It is. And, 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 we, and, and our enemies love our rules of engagement. I mean, the idea... That consider this for a second. At one point in time in Afghanistan, the rules of engagement under Obama were that soldiers had to be getting actively engaged before they could engage back. Do we realize that police officers in the United States aren't even under that strict of rules of engagement? Right, right. If you even look like you're going to pull out a gun on a cop, they will shoot you dead and be let off scot-free for doing it. And we got soldiers in Afghanistan who couldn't shoot at anybody, couldn't call in artillery, couldn't call in airstrikes, right. unless we basically went and did a survey to find out, you know, whose house was going to be damaged, whose who's, whose property was going to be damaged. Are there any? Is there anybody in in the vicinity that's not a hundred percent guilty? This is not a court of well, law. Well, even even more recently, you know? I mean, you know, while Donald Trump's uh, you know uh, peace agreement with the Taliban saved American lives, right? I mean, that's undisputable. Sure. Right? But I it didn't save... I was we didn't have... We hadn't had a casualty in 18 months. Right. I couldn't believe that. I was like, what? Yeah. Because of the Doha like, Agreement. Absolutely. But, but it didn't save Afghani lives. Right. You know, it didn't right. stop the Taliban from right. continuing to... Right. To, yeah, in, yes. to increase their presence yeah. throughout yeah. Afghanistan. Yeah. Really kind of laid the groundwork for this 
this withdrawal to happen the way that it did. They, they just had to not. They just had to not touch us. Sure, exactly. Yeah. You know, and and so you know whether that was through. Um, some people are saying agreements that they had with different factions of the military throughout Afghanistan, you know, for there not to be, you know, any kind of conflict or, or whether it was, again, taking lives that were Afghani well, and others Pompeo and, was very and, clear not, about and not American. Well, yeah. pe people are trying to pin this on Trump. And he here's, here's, here's what I want to say about those and say, well, oh, because, you know, the, Dem the Democrats are already doing this. They're saying, yeah. oh, well, all Biden's doing is executing Trump's plan. So if it's going bad, you got to look at Trump. Well, hold on a second, time out. When, uh, when Biden came into office, one of the first thing that guy did was go on a spree of executive orders, right? Right. Overturning previous executive orders of the Trump administration. They began passing legislation, which is legislation that in no way would look like legislation that Trump would have passed. Um, they started making nominations for the federal government, for the different bureaus that are right. in no way, they're the exact opposite type of people that Trump would have nominated. So before you start buying into this idea that, oh, Biden's just executing the Trump strategy, hold on a second. President Biden can do and overturn any federal mandate strategy. He can do executive orders. He's in control of the military. He is the commander in chief. Right. So it does, there's only one commander, and that happens to be Joe Biden, yep. president. So it doesn't matter what Trump said or did. You are the commander of the military. President Biden is completely responsible for whatever actions are being taken now by the military. You can't change everything Trump did over here. And, and except then, that, except and, that one little and, thing. And then say, oh, my hands are tied. I can't do anything about what Trump... Yeah. Actually, the United States military is the one thing right. that you can do just about anything you want to do. Or say, or say that, oh, I wanted to do uh, undo everything oh, Trump did except yeah. that. Yes. That's the one so thing. Which, I, so just, which I just is left it? that alone. You undid all this other stuff, <laughs> right. but you didn't undo Trump's deal in Afghanistan. Yeah. Or is it that... You can undo things that Trump did, and you have been, and you are the commander-in-chief, but you just don't want to take responsibility for it. Right. And I think it's the latter. All right. Well, on that note, again, thank you uh, to everybody for watching this special edition of The Yard Sign. Uh, and a huge thank you again to my guests over here, Joe Wicker, uh, Jimmy T. Smith. Uh, definitely won't be the last time we have you on the show. We appreciate you stopping by um, and, uh, and, and appreciate all the work you're doing. Uh, for our veterans, for our nation to continue to serve, you know, our country and our community. So we appreciate you for being here today. Yeah, thanks for coming. Uh, on behalf of Joe Wicker and Jimmy, I uh, want to thank you so much for watching. You will be able to find the audio version of this program on our uh, of, of audio platforms uh, over at the Tech Overlords at Google, Apple, Spotify, Audible, Amazon, and iHeartRadio. All right, so this will be available whenever, wherever you'd like to find it. Love to hear your feedback on this. Make sure you find this, uh, like us, follow us, and share tonight's uh, show uh, on all of your social media platforms, and we'd love to hear your feedback on it as well. Uh, again, on behalf of Joe, Jimmy, I'm Johnny Torres, your host. Thank you so much for watching The Yard Sign. Good night, everybody.